I've received a lot of really good advice over the years and kind of depending you where you are in your in your career, I'd say, you know, especially getting into your first job is, is find a great company with a great culture that wants you to be successful and is going to help you to, to develop a foundation and a network that'll serve you well for your entire career. I mean, and I was I was I was lucky, fortunate, if not lucky, you know, to join Trammell Crow Company and so many of the the, the people that I met there have helped me be successful and succeed, you know, for my entire career. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And, and then then I'd say as you get into your career a little bit, and, and I see this, I call it the three-year itch, but let a little grass grow under your feet. You know, I mean, work hard, keep your head down, but but be thoughtful about if you're going to make a change. Is, is this a lateral move or am I really improving my opportunity and to achieve my career goals and, and whatnot? Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming over to Fort Worth, spending some time with me today. Yeah, excited to be here. Uh, let's just dive in, and I would love to hear a little bit about kind of your story growing up and then kind of your business career leading up to today. I grew up in Houston and uh, got out of high school in 1992 and and uh, went to Texas Tech. Was the first person in my family to go to school, and I'd say in 94, 95, I met my now wife, Heather, who uh, really inspired me to get focused and <laughs> and, uh, and and work hard. I, I knew that she was not going to marry a chump. <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, Heather uh, moved to uh, uh, Dallas in 1996, and I was graduating from school in 1997 and had a uh, relationship with a, uh, a, a guy that was a VP uh, at Trammell Crow Company. And was afforded the opportunity to interview at Trammell Crow and and uh, came into one of the best commercial real estate markets, industrial markets uh, in the country at the time and had uh, great, great bosses, uh, great mentors. And really, it was sort of baptism by fire, you know, lots of deal volume and, and, and really some great people to learn from. And so before we get into stream, one of the questions I had is, uh, especially here in the Southwest, but it's, you're now seeing it all over the country, Trammell Crow is like the king that put out all these next generation companies. I mean, almost every company is a, a Trammell. Somebody worked at Trammell Crow. You came from Trammell Crow. What was it about Trammell Crow that created all this inspiration to go start kind of this next generation of businesses? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, the, the culture that they created around uh, winning, being entrepreneurs, taking measured uh, risks, you know, Mr. Crow was obviously a very compelling, persuasive, authentic uh, leader, and he was able to attract similar talent. And once he once he was able to bring that talent into the into the firm, he took the chains off, so to speak, and let them go uh, do their thing and be successful. And he empowered them with their with Trammell Crow's great balance sheet, Trammell Crow's great great uh, great brand, their uh, relationships in the market, and. Yeah. And then compensated them uh, based on the successes that they uh, generated. Yep. So you just mentioned that when you started in the mid to late '90s, it was the, one of the best industrial markets of all time. We're now sitting in 2020 in DFW, arguably the best industrial market we've seen in a long time. 
Can you maybe speak to like what's different about then than today? And has it always been the best industrial market in DFW? Like have we been on a 20 year run or did we kind of dip and now we're back? No, I, I think we've been on a 25 year run with only with only two years of negative absorption, if, if, if uh, memory serves, uh, during that entire time period. And a lot of that over the years has been obviously driven by population growth and and companies relocating to the Metroplex and all the things that you've heard, central location, tax advantages and, and whatnot. This cycle is definitely different uh, yeah. for the first time, you know, with, with obviously the the transition accelerated due to COVID to e-commerce has really forced some pent up demand and, and people forming e-commerce strategies. And, and I think what's interesting now uh, and for the first time for industrial Location historically for industrial really hasn't mattered that much. It was kind of $3 net, $3 land. And as as land values increased, industrial developers would move move further and further from center. And the market that we're in right now, you know, there's there's a lot of value placed on proximity to rooftops, proximity to labor. And that's that's really allowed, I think, for the first time, industrial to have sustainable rent appreciation yep. and to to charge more f- for rents and tenants rather than being f- further out, they'll pay a significant premium. So you've got you know land that could be used for multifamily or retail that now is being consumed by industrial. It's crazy. I mean, literally, we're buying Class B industrial, which is already built, but you're now starting to see those business models. Like you said, I heard of uh, industrial land trading for north of ten bucks the other day. Yeah, which is crazy. Like you said, it's been two, three, four, five. Now it's getting to ten. Are they building the big bombers in the 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 center city? Or are you starting to see like a smaller product kind of be you're, developed? You're, you, you, well, you don't have the. I, I think if you had the uh, the ability to aggregate, you know, sites of 80, 90 acres, you, you would see that. But but it's not available. So you're seeing smaller, shallow bay industrial uh, in the inner city, and and uh, with the goal to reach the consumer within you know the same day of of, of online orders. But yeah, it, it tends to be um, converting older. Uh, industrial, maybe even some retail, um, to to bring it into um, a more functional state, but but not not the really the million five hundred thousand square foot to million square footers. Those those have not found their way into the inner city. Not that they wouldn't. Yeah, it's it's it's. I guess it's a function of available land. Have have you? Is it safe to say that kind of in a post COVID world, the industrial market is actually better today than it was maybe in January and February, or is it still coming back? Yeah, like the other product types, you have the haves and the have-nots. Yep. So, you know, we, we lease and manage around 250 million square feet. Um, our occupancy rates across that portfolio continue to, you know, they're, they're about what they were when we went into COVID. Um, I think, you know, industries that are tied to hospitality and consumer goods, retail, um, you know, they're those smaller business businesses continue to struggle a little bit. Yep. The, the larger deals, 100,000 square feet and larger, the e-commerce strategies. I mean, those are, those are, those big deals are, we've seen a massive uptick in, in, in rents and, um, and demand. And then right behind that or paired with it, you have capital markets. So it's, it's sort of the perfect storm where you've got institutional investors and capital that's moving out of retail um, out of hospitality temporarily, you know, pressing the pause button for office. And so you have a lot of pent up demand, yep. you know, coming into in- industrial as well. I want to get back to industrial and office and retail and what y'all are seeing. But so you go to Trammell Crow and then in 2003, you leave and join Stream. 
Um, I actually uh, joined a small firm in, da- in Dallas, Robert Lynn Company. Okay. Uh, and that was a pretty uh, important step. Robert Lynn, um, really, really great collection of talented, nice people. Um, it was a different model than what I was accustomed to at, at Trammell Crow Company in, in that it was, it was it was sort of pure street brokerage, yep. um, intense you know sales processes and whatnot. It was a different style than what I really uh, liked. And I was there for maybe nine months, a year, okay. and then uh, was approached by Mike McPhee and, and Lee Bellin, who are the two founders of Stream, about joining Stream and starting an industrial business that we would set up as as, a, as its own company, which that was very appealing to me to own my own business and, yep. and work with people that had already become successful. So I made the transition from Robert Lynn. Uh, and then looking back on that, I think I think being that, that short stop there was really important because... As we built out our industrial business in Dallas, as we built out our different business lines across the company, we've taken that sort of sophistication, professionalism that I was exposed to or experienced at uh, Trammell Crow Company, and and not to say that the people at Robert Lynn don't operate with professionalism and uh, expertise, but uh, but really that 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 level of sophistication, and, and then paired it with you know the, the the grinding hard work, market intelligence approach that I learned at Robert Lynn Company and. And uh, look to merge those, and and it, it's worked really well at Stream. I want to talk a lot about Stream in the early days, but you mentioned Robert Lynn, and I've heard this like a hundred times that they're it's one of the best places to like train and learn, especially if you're you know cold calling and just really getting going. Is there anything that like comes to mind of why they they continue to come up in conversations, having like a great junior program? I I, I think they've they're, they they have been very discipline and committed to that process. Yeah. And 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 there's no shortcut to getting out of their training program. You have to know it. You have to do it well. They've got great leaders like Mark Miller and George Dutter and Tom Lynn and of course Mr. Lynn himself, who was a phenomenal, you know, real estate professional yep. um, leader in our industry. And so no, they've they've not changed much over the years. I mean, they've of course evolved to be better, but they've got a phenomenal, probably the best training program in the in the city. I love it. All right, so you get to stream to start the industrial business. Like, what did so you? What what's your first day? What are you tasked with doing? What's starting an industrial <laughs> business? <laughs> we, uh, yeah, I, I, at the time, I was I was having su- success as a broker, mm-hmm. and so I felt like, okay, you know, I, I just need to get back to the basics, right? I need to keep making calls. I need to retain the clients that I have, and and then and then from there, I need to begin to recruit uh, some some people to join the team. Um, at Stream, we we talk about a three-legged stool: talent, uh, service, and deal. So, talent, recruiting, retaining, growing our talent, uh, service business that kind of goes without an explanation, uh, and then deals, doing deals, both investments and and development. And and the most successful people at Stream uh, have all three legs to that uh, to that three-legged stool. But uh, yeah, I got focused quickly on our service business, and then reached out to. My brother-in-law, who actually I had recruited over to Trammell Crow Company, Kyle Valentine, who now runs our our Houston business, he came within a couple months of me joining and was actually, you know, very much my partner in, in launching our industrial business. And then several other people, you know, one or two a month for the next five or six months where we looked up in a year or so and had maybe eight or 10 people uh, in the industrial practice. And then we were we were organized by submarket and you know calling on landlords and, and tenants and just doing whatever we could to generate commissions at the time. What did Stream offer when you joined then 
I know you all are in lots of markets now, but from a service capability to where you all today, like what has been added since you've joined the company? Like, did y'all Gosh, have construction lots. management? We had, rep you know, we had, we had, we had construction management, we had brokerage, we had pr- property management and accounting. And I would say that, you know, in every one of those categories, we had, we were far from reaching our potential or providing exceptional service. Yep. Um, we had some really good people, but we needed to, we needed to have more processes, more systems, more experts. But it was it was office, it was industrial, and uh, bring up our game, yeah, so to speak. You started this business, and then we'll fast forward twenty years. You're now the president of Stream. Can you talk about what market y'all are in today, what the business looks like today, and then I want to drill a little more into like what your job looks like. You're clearly not out doing brokerage activities anymore. Yeah, so you know the company's changed a lot over the years. We, we've we've had a very flat operational structure. And so I went from running our industrial business to leading our DFW business and our California business. But, you know, with with my peers that were running uh, other markets and and we sort of ran the company, I, I describe it as like a, a pickup basketball game. Okay. Um, we were having we were having great success. We had have a lot of really good uh, players on the team. And and as different challenges or opportunities came to us, we would, you know, whoever had the time to commit to those opportunities would would run point. Um, what we've realized is we've had success in other markets is we need to improve on the connectivity of our company across the the various cities and platforms. There are also opportunities for us to create platforms that are centralized, not necessarily by geography, but but also by area of expertise. And, and so we're very focused now on office tenant rep, for example, um, expanding our industrial development platform, which we call IDS, our industrial development services. And those those teams will be uh, organized not by geography, but by uh, a hierarchy that would go across multiple markets. Is there hub Dallas or they like you said, they could be anywhere? No, no. You know, before we started the conversation, you were uh, complimenting our marketing platform, which we're really proud of. But uh, Susan Bloomfield, who's our chief marketing officer, yep. she's based out of California. Um, so it's it's wherever the talent is, is, is where we're happy to be. Some of it is is centralized in Dallas. We've got you know great leaders in all of our different cities. I love it. From the outside looking in, and just through conversation, you know, in the industry, I mean, y'all are consistently y'all open up about a new market every year, or is that just what it seems like? How how many markets are y'all in now? It's it's been a few few years since we've opened an office. Um, we're in twelve different cities right now, so it's all the Texas, Dallas, Austin, Houston, San Antonio, Atlanta, Charlotte, DC. Denver, um, Orange County, and LA. Did I say Chicago? Chicago as well. Chicago, yep. We'll announce a couple new markets. We'll announce uh, Nashville um, formally here over the next 30 days. And and we'd like to be in Phoenix as well. I'd say, you know, a, a Manhattan, New York is an aspirational market. So we wow. want to be in all the gateway cities around the country. But we're not in a hurry, you know, to to be in any of those markets. We don't we don't have some grand plan that we're trying to execute as fast as we can. But but y'all do have a proven strategy for entering a new market. So maybe my first question is, one, how do you know it's time to go to a new market? Is that somebody within the firm coming saying, I want to go open up Nashville? Or is that you or your team going, we need to be in Nashville. Let's find some people to do it. You know, it, it could be any combination of a few things. So you mentioned, you know, someone within Stream that that has an itch to run a business and and or and or move to a city. So it could be them raising their hand. It could be uh, our clients in many instances have said, look, we've got a, a portfolio here. Or we're really uh, liking this market. And, and would you guys consider opening an office there? Uh, we've also, you know, as you, as you watch um, the way the economy and these markets and cities have evolved recently, it used to be that 
employees, the labor would follow the companies. And, right. and, and now that's changed very much where the, the companies are following the labor. And so you watch the, the growth patterns for markets like Nashville and, and Phoenix and a Charlotte, you know, the Carolinas, Georgia. And so you sort of look at um, where we can operate a successful brokerage business and then also couple that or pair it with our investment and development strategies. And, and so those, that, that, that would be how we pick the city. And does each city have its own, like you started the industrial business, is each city kind of its own business with ownership in that city? Or it's sometimes it's just owned from Dallas with employees in that it city? It can be both. So, be both. so I would say the origin of most of our stream cities um, has, uh, you know, the, the, the parent company stream yep. owning the controlling interest and then the partners within those cities uh, own a meaningful share. And so there, this is not some, you know, co-op sort of, franchise model. I mean, right. they, own, they own a meaningful interest in their cities and benefit uh, from its success. And then as we have people both within stream and in those individual individual cities that that provide exceptional results and 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 contribute to our values and our culture, they also have the opportunity to uh, become partners in those cities. So I don't know exactly how many partners we have across the company today, but you know, it's, 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 it's more than 20, more than 22, 23, something like that. And, and, uh, it's something that, that we're really proud of and, and learn from uh, Trammell Crow company. You know, one of the things Mike and Lee, the two founders of the company said they, you know, it was all, it was really important, not only that you have partners in those individual cities, but they wanted to make sure that all of our interests were aligned so that we were partners with one another. Yep. So do you have to have like almost, and I'm fascinated by this idea of going to new cities and does somebody have to have been in, I guess what my question is, uh, they have to learn the culture somewhere before they can just go to a new city and, and be streamed. So does that usually, you're usually hiring from within to expand or somebody? No, that, you know, our, our model historically and, and Mike and I, and, and, you know, we, we've, we've, we're always debating that, that conversation or that topic. If we have somebody that is, that is ready uh, and wanting to move, then absolutely. Historically, all of our new offices uh, up until a few years ago um, were somebody that moved from one stream office to another, and that's maybe what I was and, alluding and to. Which, which we lo- we love that very much. Um, you know, you know, you, you know them, you trust them. They're battle tested. The relationships are formed. It preserves our culture, which is what's most important to us. Some of those other offices, you know, have have worked great. Most have. Some have have not. Yep. Uh, and where they haven't, we've we've adapted and. And uh, stepped in to add the additional resources, but but when you know somebody really well, you know their culture. Some sometimes these people that are willing to move are really young. Yep, and so they still have some professional development, you know, to to go through. And and so you're taking a risk. You know, you're taking more time. You're spending a little bit more money. And and they may, you know, um, they may or may not be capable of running a a complex business with lots of moving parts and, yep. and people. Um, and so more recently, we've had uh, we've had a few people, Marty Pupil, who uh, joined us. He was previously uh, president of Colliers. He's now running our West Coast, California businesses. He was a guy that that obviously had great success. And we spent time to get to know one another and realize, you know, in, in pretty short order, if we're that that he was he w- would be a phenomenal culture. Fit. Yeah, yeah. You know, he would fit right in nice, passionate, honest and smart. And so. You know, if we have somebody that can check both boxes, stream, and has had great success, and is willing to move, it's hard to find somebody that's that's 15 years, 20 years into the business that yep. says, "Hey, I'm, I'm ready to pick up my family and move to Charlotte or Nashville." So now we're focused on finding people in those markets yep. and uh, making sure they 
they would fit within our culture. You've said multiple times since we've been talking, and again, as an outsider looking in, it gets brought up, but this like market intelligence approach, what does market intelligence mean? And I, even when I'm talking to to young people that might be, you know, leasing homes around TCU, which is kind of where I started, to me, it just, yeah. I, I knew every house on every street that rented for this. I know who owned it, when it sold, blah, blah, blah. But y'all have always preached market intelligence. Just like, what does that mean to you? And why is it kind of the 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 center of how y'all think about business? You know, you, you love real estate because different than other industries, it's unregulated, it's wildly inefficient. And you take a guy like Jason Moser, for example, you know, who's been with Stream for 16 years. He was one of our first industrial teammates joined uh you know he was he was at, the guy that worked out of the back of his car yeah like, I mean, every day. jason's got a printer in the back of his car i've he heard of this does. guy yeah he's he, a legend he owns a lot of real estate he's a he's a really smart guy but you take that brook hollow submarket for example yep and there may be a few people that would know uh it as well as jason does but nobody in the world knows it better yep you know and that's that's pretty powerful information to have provided you know what to do with it so understanding the supply the demand trends being a person that is uh, really, really capable of communicating that well, you know, yep. and understanding how to act on that information, yep. uh, identifying imbalances within the market, and so that's why it's that's why it's so important. And I and I think that kind of goes back to the the Robert Lynn and and Trammell Crow, you know, where I think we've done really well, and and guys like Blake Kendrick and Cannon Green and Ryan Boozer have, have made it much better. But it's taking that market intelligence, the the information that we're gathering. Uh, and putting it into a form that that uh, is actionable for our institutional clients, you know, to understand the markets that they're making these massive acquisitions in better than they would if they were to just come here and start contacting, you know, ran- random groups and brokers. And so we want to be known for having and providing the best market information across our entire company. I get a quarterly stream email with the court. I mean, in the certain markets I've selected, I want and I, I'm. I don't mean to keep bragging because we're on the podcast, but it, it is, it's truly incredible. I'll ask oh. a question on that in a second. You're, you're nice. Thank you. If you're coming out of college and you're looking for a job and you were just giving someone the high level, like how would you say, go learn this market? Is that going to every building, writing it down, getting on CoStar, looking at rental rates, talking to brokers? Is it just kind of all the above? Is just picking a geography and becoming obsessed with everything in it? Yeah, well, I'll I'll back up for a second. So I I think too often, you know, as an industry, we push people into the market before they're ready. Right. And and one of the things, you know, we're very careful about at Stream, and especially when recruiting people straight out of straight out of college, is 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 to make sure we that we can provide the optimal learning and training experience, and 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 we really want to be great. Um, we want to take great care of of them in their first job opportunity because you know if, if if they don't have a good experience, it can stunt their growth and career development. And and so we really want to uh, be very careful about how we train them. Not to mention, we don't want people passing out stream business cards before they're ready to do that. Yep. And so you know, really understanding the basics of proposals and requests for proposals and 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 how to communicate with 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 other other brokers in the market how to communicate with clients and sort of really just having a good foundation and that takes 6 or 8 months to to begin to just learn to at least speak the language but as you know as as you start getting into the market the the key yes is to is to is to go like you said you did it for TCU you know it's it's, it's to go block by block street by street understand the owner yeah. know the owner know the tenants know their sizes um, as you as you evolve and really begin to 
have a, a, a more macro understanding of the market. What are the trends that drive demand in that market? What are the industries that are most active? What are the economic cycles that would cause that market to do well or not do well? And, and you know, in, in a market like uh, Dallas or Chicago or LA, I mean, obviously they're very diverse across industries. And so you could have a, a, a period in time where DFW Airport's doing great and Garland, more manufacturing is not doing so well, yep. you know? So really being able to break down the various sub-markets within a city is important. Yeah, people that don't aren't from DFW always reach out to me like, DFW is just like one yeah. market. I'm like, yeah. no, we've it's got- 850. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can make a whole career just in DFW. So you just mentioned that um, y'all have done an incredible job and obviously as someone that consumes y'all's information, uh, putting it out, do y'all use some type of technology? Is it meetings that you host weekly? Like how do you- make sure that the information people are getting while they're out beating the streets is like making its way into a, you know, something that everybody can learn from? Yeah, great question. Thank you. The, um, across all of our business lines, you know, communication is central to any company's or business's success. And so aggregating that information, having a culture and an environment where everyone is willing to share, you know, and, and, and especially as a broker, things like comps and and uh, deals in the market. I mean, those those are those are those are the assets that you have to go to trade to win business right. and, and 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 make commissions. Um, at Stream, you you got to we we got to create an environment where people trust sharing that information, and that means they got to know that it's it's being used the right way, and that and that they're going to receive the same benefit, you know, from others on their team. And so we're 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 crazy uh, disciplined about our weekly meetings about updating, you know, the, the, the market information that we have in terms of tenants that are in the market or comps and require that of all of our, of all of our teammates for, for a long time. I think we relied a lot on our brokers in terms of the quarterly reports that you're referring to, to do all the writing and, and do all the data analytics. And, and that takes a lot of time, obviously away from their day. And, yep. and so we've, we've done some things recently, adding, adding writers and, and putting some marketing um, professionals around that process to make it a little bit more efficient. We've not had researchers, for example. I mean, our the, our research comes from our brokers that are in the streets and and that's doing the, best the deals. Information, yeah, it really is. That's the real. That's what's really happening on the ground. Yeah. All right. A question came in earlier this week. Y'all have been in data centers for quite a while. I mean, is it fair to say that y'all were maybe early to the game? Uh, in data centers, well, I, I, I think we were very early to the game. Uh, Rob Kennedy and, and and Paul Moser started our data center business probably fourteen years ago. Yep, fourteen fifteen years ago. And how did that come about? You'd need to get them to tell the story, but it goes something like this: you know, they were fielding a bunch of phone calls, you know, for tenants that were coming into the market, and and there was a specific requirement, and and they felt like you know they're the, based on the requirement that they were just kind of real estate one hundred and one, right? Based on the requirement. And some of the deal volume that they were seeing, they felt like it was underserved in terms of supply. And so they began looking for office buildings and industrial buildings that could meet that demand. And yep. and, uh, and that was really sort of how they began to get to know the business. McVean, uh, Mike uh, McVean also played a big part in that strategy. And then as it evolved and and as as they began to learn more, you know, we, we acquired a couple of data center portfolios, a, a big one on the West Coast in California. Uh, and then also began to build data centers. And and I don't know where we would rank among data center developers in the country, but right there towards the top, we've got, we've got some really big uh, development programs going on and active projects in, in Chicago and Phoenix and 
Texas, throughout Texas. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a big business for how us. big a business is it now? You, you know, by by dollars, you know, it's it's pushing into the billions. Wow. You know, but uh, but by people, it's it's you know we're developing and investing. Our, we don't have a, a a brokerage business per se, but they've got a uh, you know big management model and but it's it's a significant business for us. Is it fair to say that the anticipated demand for data centers is almost endless right now? I think I was reading something that even like a Google and a Microsoft, they can't even project 12 months out how much data capacity they're actually going to need. Yeah. It's that's that that that's very accurate. Yeah. Without mentioning uh names, but but our 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 pipeline right now within our data center business is is the the best it's ever been. That's I mean, insane. They're they're really really busy. And that's pan. I mean, I don't know if it it's pandemic proof. I mean, people are more on their phones if they're locked in their houses or yeah, on protecting the and preserving data. data. And it's 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 uh, yeah, it's it's and it's only going to continue to grow. All right, so y'all manage two hundred and fifty million square feet. Y'all get to work with some of the best uh, ownership groups in the country, institutional, private. What makes like a great ownership group? Like what do some of the best owners of real estate have in common that you just kind of see across the board? I think people that empower us to do our job mm-hmm. and do it, do it, uh, you know, they, they, they trust us to make decisions on the ground. They're, they're, they're nice. They work well with our, with our team and, and our staffs and, and, and they're, they're great communicators. Yep. You know, we, we work with all sorts of landlords, but it, but, uh, the ones that really trust you. The ones that have the uh, infrastructure processes in place. Some of these uh, companies that are that are growing quickly, those those can be more difficult, you know, yeah. because they they don't know exactly what information they need, and reports are constantly changing, uh, which is really really hard on our property managers and accounting teams. Uh, you, you know all about that. Yeah, and and so if they know what they need to do, they can do it really well. But when that information and those requests change frequently, it gets a little bit more difficult. And from your seat, when you are kind of thinking about how the real estate's doing in the country and y'all are now coast to coast. I was talking to somebody at Blackstone the other day and they said that their real estate business helps their private equity business because they can almost get a feel by which tenants are growing and what industry like y'all are now spread out across the country. Y'all must have amazing data as to like how the country's breathing. I mean, you can see different markets, which tenants are expanding and what industries have y'all do y'all use something that do y'all use technology that you built? Do you um, have some third party software that you use? Like, how do you manage all this data? Because you guys have a, almost eight service lines and 12 markets. Yeah. So, you know, you bring up something that we're working on right now, and that's the aggregation of big data. So, we hired a guy named Vincat Kendu who came over from uh, Howard Hughes. He was uh, chief technology officer there. He joined Stream probably 18, 19 months ago. Yeah. Uh, and we've really empowered him to build out our technology platforms. And and uh, we were, I would say, you know, pretty far behind in terms of knowing what to do and what we needed to do. And yeah. so aggregating that data, both it's coming through our development business and our investment business, and then also our brokerage business and putting it into an actionable form is something that we're that he's really focused on yep. um, right now. And that's where, that's where the entire industry is headed now intuitively we get a lot of that information just by talking to our brokers and and knowing you know that california companies are asking about texas markets and and we're and we're seeing you know even brokers in markets like chicago wanting to move we just moved a, a broker's team from chicago to to charlotte um, so intuitively you pick up some of that just by being 
um, in the markets. But having that data really and and being able to cut it up so that you can look at very diff- different industries and and identify trends is is really important. And that's something we're focused on right yep. now. Um, talking about y'all's development business, y'all do industrial and industrial office and data centers. Okay. So in the industrial world right now, are you doing any spec? Are you doing, you already have a a user in tow, a mix of both? A mix of both, but most, most of what we're doing is spec. So right now we have about 15 million square feet of industrial projects in the pipeline. That's probably 30 or so, uh, projects. Um, that includes all of our Texas markets. California, Denver, uh, and Atlanta. We, as I mentioned before, I think at the, at the at, towards the beginning of the podcast, as we've evaluated different opportunities to establish platforms, we set up an industrial development services platform, uh, and that's organized and led by Cannon Green. Everybody's based out of DFW, but we've got uh, Scott Swanick that runs the West Coast. Bates Arnott, who joined us from Hillwood, runs yep. the Central Region. He's, he's back. Guy. Yeah, he's back. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then Dale Todd, who was an executive at J.P. Morgan, uh, recently relocated from New York to Dallas, uh, and he's running the East Coast or the eastern half of the U.S. force. And so the focus there really is to have you know one team of experts that's supporting the the the, the platform and and our offices across the country. And so growing our industrial development business is priority number one right now. It's it's the best market or the best product class in the in the country for sure. Yeah, for sure. All right. Let's talk a little bit about office and retail. Uh, those seem to be the, besides hotels, which we don't need to talk about. Maybe my first question is, and I, I bet if we had done this, you know, two or three months ago, maybe the answer keeps evolving, but what's going to happen to office from your perspective? Like, is there any early data or signals that y'all are seeing that makes a great bull case for office? Not, I don't know. Like, yeah, what, I, I I think the issues around office are going to have less to do with the office building itself yeah, and more to do with the cities, you know, and the way the cities are functioning. Um, some of that are going to be some, some of that's going to be around politics, for example. I think for the first time ever, you have geopolitical risk in the U.S. that these governments or cities or states will come and shut an economy down more quickly than the other. And I think corporations are going to make decisions as to where they want to be based on that information and how they measure that risk. But as it relates to the, you know, and, and, and mass transit, that's going to matter a lot. I yep. mean, people are concerned about getting on subways and trains and, and, and buses. And I think that'll persist for a while. But as it relates to the, the office building, I, I think there's going to be, uh, if we do get a vaccine and Moderna's today saying we've got, you know, they've got a really 95% success rate or whatever. If, if that if that happens, we've got a hard stop yep. you know, uh, to this pandemic. And, and I think that office buildings will open back up. I think that uh, companies are going to function much better. You know, we spent a lot. Of, I mean, all, all the all the some really smart people were putting together, you know, the, the, the whole idea that that having communities within an office and culture and and denser gatherings, you know, that was that was the best way, most optimal way to operate a company in an office. And and I, I don't think that I, I think that they they put a lot of time and thought into that. And I think ultimately that's where we'll get back to. Yep. There's going to be a hangover effect, of course, where we're going to need to be thoughtful about, you know, spacing and and uh, how uh, flow in an office. But uh, but but I think in the long run, no, it's, it's, it's going to be right back to where it was. I think there are going to be some cities that will be winners and losers. Yep. you know, um, as, as migration patterns pick up again. We're, we're seeing eye to eye. I'm yeah. along the office. I have not talked to anybody that doesn't miss 
the office. They don't, maybe we've learned you don't have to be there five days a week from eight to five. And there's, it's certainly able to, to, you know, work remote or work from home one day a week. But I think people crave social interaction. That's how we've been for millions of years. Uh, It's not going to change now. I agree with the hangover effect, but maybe one more question on office. Are, Are you seeing like leasing activity picking up at all? Or is it more, is everybody still kind of on pause waiting to just kind of see how this shakes out? The only people that are making decisions are the ones that have to make a decision. Yeah. Um, we're seeing you know, the smaller, smaller companies. They're they're inclined to not do anything or even just let a lease expire and stay home for a little bit. Yep. Bigger corporates, you know, they're 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 making decisions because they have to. Landlords for the most part are flexible to accommodate, you know, as far as timing and, and whatnot because they need to be. Tours have picked up though. If you looked at, you know, where we were and June, July, and August, and, and where we are today. I mean, our tour activities picked up significantly, but it's nowhere near, you know, pre-pandemic levels. Yeah. But it's but it's it's getting a little bit better. And also, you know, I, th- I think you know the human mind sort of is quick to forget, you know, painful experiences. At Houston, for example, you know, Harvey was a devastating hurricane, and 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 really caused a lot of damage and distress. And so, for eighteen months after Hurricane Harvey. You know, every uh, RFP that we receive, what the first five questions would be around hurricane preparedness and floodplain issues. And and uh, it was like month 19 and talking yeah. to Preston Young and Kyle, our two partners who run the market down there. It was like all, all of a sudden it was just over. Yeah. I mean, they just the questions were no longer and and uh, everybody had just moved on. And so I, I, I expect once there is a hard stop to this, that there will be some good lessons learned, but we'll be able to return to using real estate as we have in the past. I'm with you, man. I'm 100% with you. Maybe any commentary on retail? No. I, I, you know, one of the things we're monitoring for retail right now is h- how does that relate or potentially solve some of the uh, e-commerce needs that are that are out there? Um, so, you know, I, w- I would tell you if we had more time to spend on it, we would be really focused on some of the big box retail and how that might be converted. But the reality is, is our development personnel is so focused on all these other projects that are right down the middle of the fairway that we're keeping them focused and and not distracted. But it will be interesting to see, you know, how how some of this big box retail and gets repurposed for yep. or toward industrial and how the communities handle trucks and traffic and and things like that. Between that and like converting malls that you know f- might not structurally be ready to handle big loads, but obviously are going to be vacant with tons of space. Yep. Are you, that, are you are you guys tracking some of that stuff right now? We're just I'm talking to a lot of people about it because, you know, we like we've been buying this class B industrial stuff and, you know, it's already built. It's close to rooftops. It's got infrastructure around it. And we're, you know, had we had we done this in April and March, we were talking to people right out the gates about, hey, let's go raise a fund to buy distressed you know, big box retail what, and let's work on converting this stuff. And I've met a lot of people that are, whether it's technology or, you know, better engineering or construction type, trying to figure out how this is going to work. Because then you talk to somebody that's working with like an Amazon that they have 1500 projects right now going on across yeah. the country. And like half of that's new development and the other half is reworking existing space. I'm just excited to see the next five to 10 years, how it's going to play out. I'm going to let really smart Einstein figure it out, and then I'm just going <laughs> to copy whatever they do. That makes two of us. <laughs> That's kind of the business model. Well, and the malls, you know, they're, they're you know, because of the parking, they're on, they're on massive 
acres, yep. you know, so you, it, 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 when you take Ridgemar Mall here, it's a mile away, right next to some of the best neighborhoods in Fort Worth. It's like 30% occupied. And of those 30%, there's like an aquarium. There's a, I mean, nobody's going to that mall, but it's on 85 acres. Do you raise it? What, what, what do you think you do? I don't know. I, I, so the first question is like, can the foundation handle the load? Right. And if it can't, do you have to come in and re-engineer all that? And what does that do to cost? But then you take like an Amazon or somebody that wants to be, a, let's see, let's talk about last mile. Let's talk about last quarter mile. I have to imagine it's worth the money to try and figure out how to rework these spaces. But again, I'm got a lot going on and I'm just going to wait for Einstein to do it. And yeah. then I'm going to copy closely. Yeah. Is there any markets in the U.S. that maybe don't jump to people's mind immediately? You mentioned Nashville and some other places that you're going into, but are there any kind of interesting markets that nobody talks about as much that when you're talking about kind of this re-migration of the country, we might see some some new things boom? Like one I think about often is Waco. It's like right between DFW and Austin. It's right in the traffic corridor. Um, I don't think it gets enough attention, but anything that just comes to mind? No, I mean, we're, we're focused mostly on primary markets and larger secondary markets. You know, I, I would say Savannah, you know, is a market with good okay. proximity to to Atlanta that has got a, you know, they've got, there's a lot of industrial demand there, but yeah. but in, in a few institutions that own product there, but it's it's not a really sophisticated industrial market. So we're actually making a trip out there December 9th and 10th with a big group to go check it out and do a little digging. We picked up a project that we're managing out there, which is what brought us. And now we're sort of interested to got it. You know, check it out. So, so a lot of times it, it is just an owner that's like, hey, we're going to be in this market. We're going to do big things. We'd like you to, to be there with us. Yeah. yeah. And I should say link. Yeah. Link. When you're developing industrial across the country, is it easiest to develop in Texas or is it pretty kind of the same pattern no matter what market you're in? No, it's, it's, it, Texas, uh, is it Georgia, Texas? I mean, Georgia's got some topo issues and rock and things that you have to deal with. But in terms of dealing with municipalities, I mean, th- those are, those are the, going to be for far and away the easiest places to develop. California, you know, the lead time, uh, <laughs> is, it's, it's difficult, you know, depending on where you're at and all the different issues that will come up. Colorado, for example, we've got a site in Colorado, uh, west of Denver that, that, um, we've been working on for, 30 months, 35 months. And, and I think we've got at least two more years before we'll even put a shovel in the ground. So it, yeah, the, the lead time for, for a, for, for a well-located project and depending on the municipalities you're having to work with it, it can, if you're not in Texas, it can take quite a while. And to put that into perspective, I think one of the things that, you know, I've done some development, y'all do a ton of it. One of the things I'm always, it kind of gets me up. I don't know if the word's upset, but you do a development project, you get a development fee. But usually the development fee starts when the project starts, which means we're kind of coming out of the ground. Do, do you all have something set up to where those, so you take like a California market where you might be in pre-dev for two years? Yeah. You don't what, make what, any what, money what, during Yeah, what, what we're doing now is, is we're straight lining, you know, the development fee over the entire duration Got of it. the project that our team's working on it. And it could be a little bit like a bell curve, you know, where we get started early. But yeah. but as you know, you know, I mean, uh, uh, de- depending on the structure, you know, if it's a, it's a, if it's a fee development or, um, you know, if it's in partnership, we've got, you know, a lot of 
development personnel with big salaries and payroll costs that yeah. need to be justified and covered during that time period. For and, sure. And uh, assuming everyone's signed off on the project and 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 it's moving forward, then yeah, we we look to begin collecting development fees, if for nothing else, just to make sure we're covering costs. It's not going to be a, a profit center per se, but but I, we look at it like, and most of our partners agree that we should all have skin in the game and and that the project should, should be able to cover that. It, the key is getting it right with your on the front end, as you know, with your with your partners and, and your lenders, and and um, as we're having those conversations, that they, they they understand. Are you seeing any uh, projects get built that are multi level, more than one story? Just reading about the same stuff. You are, yeah. yeah. You know, some of what Pro John done any of it? We haven't done any of it. Yeah. Is it? It only make is it? I guess it only makes sense in like a Seattle or Seattle, a Portland, New York City. right? Lo- right, right location. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've looked a lot uh, more recently, kind of changing subjects, but. But at uh, refrigerated space, you know, there's yep. a lot of demand there. But again, you only have so many hours in a day and we're trying not to distract our teams because they've got, you know, projects that are right down the middle of the fairway that they're working on. But that's a that's a space that's pretty interesting to us right now. Yeah, we owned a cold storage building. Uh, it was a 3PL. It was like a 200,000 foot building. This guy leased it and then he leased it out to much smaller operators. And what we realize is there's an enormous demand because a lot of the way that the food and beverage world's going are these kind of niche brands. Right. So they it's only like need ninety-eight percent occupied. Correct. Right? Ninety-eight, ninety-nine. It's insane. Yeah. But if you want to go build a new building, it's really expensive. You have to build a massive facility. And so you need like a Campbell soup or one of the big boys to take the whole right. thing. I think there's a huge opportunity in the market for somebody that could stamp out these smaller facilities. That could be leased to these tenants that require ten to twenty thousand feet only, or cubic feet, however they man, uh, measure it. But um, again, it's like so cost prohib- prohibitive. Yeah, um, and, the, and the and the lenders don't the debt doesn't get it yet. Yep. You know, it kind of reminds me of where data centers were eight, nine, ten years ago, where where you're you're building a building that's twelve or fifteen hundred bucks a foot. And, yep. You know, it just doesn't. It's not a real estate play, and they can't really make sense of it. Yeah. That's where you know some of that uh, cold storage development is right now. Well, that'll be, I mean, that's going to be kind of, you've seen it now, Airbnb, you used to not be able to finance like an Airbnb because it was short-term leases. I think there might be some of that that we might see in office, almost like a new type of lease rather than these long 10-year leases. But yeah, getting the lender on board is, you kind of need them to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're you know, we're, uh, Ben Hawd out of our Atlanta office has developed uh, this rapid program where for you know, smaller tenants where we're doing spec suites. Um, you can you can identify or, 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 or search our inventory online and, and find the small suites that are ready to go. You can sign a lease online. You can pay your rent by credit card. Really, very fast, very efficient. I'll send you I'll send you some details on it. But yeah, it's, but it's an it's initial launch right now. We've got some really good momentum in Atlanta and Chicago, a few buildings in Dallas. Uh, but it, but the whole idea is to really simplify that that process, which yep. is which is intimidating. You know, if you're a small or new business owner and you don't have an extra, you know, minute in your day, much less to go try to try to get through a 25 page lease document or sign a five year lease when you, you don't know what your what your business looks like. You know, 18 months from now. Yep. Couple more questions and then we'll we'll bring it on home. But uh, we, we've touched on multiple times kind of marketing. And y'all do it really, really well. So maybe first question is, how big is y'all's marketing team? It's probably, you know, guessing on headcount, you know, between thirty and forty. And when that's that's a big marketing team. Yeah. When did it become apparent that being exceptional marketers was just such a big part of the job? 
Well, great question. I, I would. I, we, we had we had a, a couple people at Stream um, going all the way back into the mid, you know, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. That were really great marketers. Um, they were brokers, and they would take a, a, a great message. And then and then we we had mostly graphic designers. Yeah. Uh, and so the collateral that we would put out was really really nice. It, it was, was awesome. It was, it, it, it uh, yeah it is and was. But we looked up about five years ago, six years ago, and and uh, we had all graphic designers, and it's kind of like having a basketball team with five point guards. Yeah, you can be you know really good in one area, but 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 falling short in other areas. And so we met a lady named Susan Bloomfield who had run marketing for a couple of larger firms, and really was looking for an environment where she could be empowered to build her team and and sort of her vision for. Um, what what marketing can be, uh, you know, to the brokers and and different business lines, and and so she's put in place. She's built a, a diverse team of, of of marketers, ranging from you know writers to uh, content experts and social media and whatnot. So so that team now it's got you know they've got it, it, it's it's multi dimensional. And Susan, as I mentioned before, is based out of California, but a lot of care and attention goes into the content. It goes into the design. Um, we don't want anything leaving the office that's less than exceptional, you know, and, and even even kind of getting into the basics like, you know, marketing flyers for one off buildings and whatnot. Those can be simple, but we still want them to look professional. We owe that to our customers. We owe it to our brokers. I'm here to tell you it is the best marketing in the industry. Oh, you're very and, nice I, and, I, and I'm into Thank marketing and branding. So, all right. Last last question on business saving kind of a loaded one for the end. But the last decade, we've seen a ton of consolidation of businesses exactly like streams. You've seen lots of companies get bought. How do you think about that? How does that create more advantage for y'all? And um, I won't ask if y'all are going to ever sell or get bought. That's We don't have to go down that road. But I'm just curious how you think about it. This world keeps consolidating and consolidating and stream has not participated in any of that. Yeah. So I appreciate you asking that question. The um, Well, Forever's a long time, so I won't say we'll never sell. But yeah, we, it's not even a part of our plan or or strategy. Yeah, it's not something that we talk about ever. Yep. Um, despite you know being approached by several of the larger firms, it, it it presents a great and very unique opportunity for us right now because as you look at these big national firms, for the most part, um, they 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 got the same sales pitch. They they've got great you know many of them have really really great uh, professionals, but. They're limited by their size in, in, in some ways, and, and they're beholden to their shareholders or, and or private equity that owns them, you know, and that prevents them. And, and even during the pandemic, we've seen that it prevents them from, uh, in some ways, doing what's right by their people, you know, and, and rather than making a decision for, for their people, they're having to do things to please their shareholders or, or, or owners. And so we're fortunate to not have to be able to do that. Uh, and then... You look at great companies like HFF and and Trammel Crow Company, you know, in its in, in its prior life, uh, the Staubach Company. You know, these are the companies that we aspire to be like in terms of our culture, the professionalism, and we're able, and we're very fortunate, right, to make decisions um, that are very long term in nature. You know, years, not quarters, not yeah. months. Um, so, as it relates to investing in people, uh, as it relates to how we how we set up our comp and ownership structures as, as it relates to how we invest in 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 resources it's it's been most apparent for the last nine months because you look at these larger firms and they're all cutting resources uh, they're cutting spending and we're doing quite the opposite we've hired more people in the last nine months than we did the previous 24 combined 
and we've added significant resources and our, our technology spend, for example, uh, has increased significantly over where it was last year. We look at this as a phenomenal opportunity for us to take market share and, and to, to take talent and expand our business. Again, watching from the outside, looking in at the marketing, it seems like every day on LinkedIn, y'all have hired somebody new. I, I wasn't going to go down this road, but let's just spend maybe five, 10 minutes on this. So COVID hits in March. What does your world look like? Like, I know I was at a YPO meeting the end of February and literally asked a bunch of really smart guys. I feel like such a dumbass now. Asked a bunch of guys like, is this COVID thing even real? I mean, I'm talking 10 days before the masters gets shut down. Yeah. So, well, you shouldn't feel like a dumbass because none of us knew the answer. Nobody knew. I mean, it was crazy. So, but then you you just made a comment. We've hired more. We're spending more. We're going to use this as a chance. So in March, I'm assuming you and Mike and Lee and all the leadership kind of gathered. Like, what did those early, like, how did you guys start making decisions that now is time to double down when the rest of the world is freaking out? Yeah, well, we didn't we didn't make a decision then that we would double down. And, and you know, Liz Sheff, who is our COO, is 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 really she's the she's she is really the the cornerstone and brains behind our entire operation, whether it's our HR, IT, uh, property management, accounting. She's she's a phenomenal uh, partner and, and leader. But, you know, when, when I think it was March 16th, March 17th. And and things were happening really quickly. Markets were crashing. You know, the, it, it was apparent that they were going to shut the economy down. And and so we we were running some pretty draconian models. You know, as a property management business, you know, you're worried about getting reimbursed. You know, just payroll and things like that. Much less not. You know, uh, we were anticipating that fees would drop significantly. Uh, but you start looking, you know, playing those models out into weeks and months, and it gets pretty scary. And so. You know, we had to call Mike, Lee, Liz, and I, and several partners. And and Mike said, "Look, here's the deal. You know, we've 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 been very fortunate, very blessed over the last several years. We've made a lot of money as a company off the backs of all these people that are working for us. And so, get out of your mind any idea that we're gonna we're not gonna lay anybody off. We're not gonna furlough anybody. The last thing we're gonna do is 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 put people, you know, our people out when they need us the most." Um, and we all agreed, you know, all partners um, suspended salaries to zero. And we reassured our people, look, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to do whatever we have to do to get through this. And but but your jobs are all safe. Uh, and I think, you know, they, they appreciated that and were willing to work really hard, yeah. you know, to 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 communicate with our clients and, and to do what it took to keep their teams um, safe. And and then and then, you know. I would say month or May rather was uh, was our worst month. It was like that that was re- the real bottom for for stream. But we're fortunate because we have a diverse business. We have our brokerage business. We have office, industrial, data centers, and then really our development business and our uh, investment business. When you harvest some of those projects, you know, for the benefit of the balance sheet and the company, we looked up our balance sheet in March. It, it's better today than it than it was then. You know, That's coming awesome. out of, and I mean like significantly better. Uh, which which is which is phenomenal. As a company, we distribute five percent of our profits each year to our people, um, to our employees, and and we told them in May. We said, look, you know, we're 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 not cutting salaries, we're not letting anybody go, but we are going to hold off on distributing profits. We want to make sure that you know we can we've got cash reserves to get through this. And anyway, in July, we determined, okay, we're 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 out of the you know we're 
we're safe to go ahead and give the people what they give our people what they've earned and deserve. And we distributed 5% of the profits to the company. That's so awesome. Not at, at y'all's scale, but we have a very similar story. Uh, March and April were, I've, I've learned, I'm, I'm relatively young. I've learned more about leadership in the last seven or eight months, but we, we, we were able to just bonus our entire team. We just sold a big portfolio um, and it was the coolest day That's of the awesome. year. It was awesome. And if you had told me in March, April or May that I'd be doing that, I, yeah. we had a portfolio under contract. It got dropped second week of COVID. I, I remember looking at my partner going like, I don't know if anything's worth anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the world's shutting down um, and then that happened in, in uh, September, we were able to bonus in October and it was the coolest day of the year. Everybody was just, yeah. Well, that's when they know they work for a great, great it's awesome. leaders and great company. And it's awesome. Yeah. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. All right. A couple personal questions, then we'll head to lunch. I developed a morning routine throughout COVID. I've never had one. I was the guy that got out of bed, got in the shower and started getting on the phone. Yeah. Do you have a morning routine? It, it drives my wife nuts. <laughs> but like when I wake up, I am up. I don't yeah. think I've ever used snooze in my life. And so I kind of just hit the hit the ground and go. And so usually I, I'm, I'm in, in the shower and going into the office um, yeah. occasionally if, if there's nothing, you know, like during, during COVID, obviously we weren't going into the office. I'd, I might go exercise or watch CNBC or something for a little bit. But yeah. Um, I don't, I, I wouldn't say I have a specific routine, but, but, uh, it doesn't take me, you know, more than a couple seconds to wake up. What time do you wake up? Five thirty to six. All right. Fair enough. Somebody the other day said like two forty-five in the morning. I didn't, didn't get that. No, no, that's, that's my mom, but I'm, yeah. I'm <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever received? I've received a lot of really good advice over the years and kind of depending you where you are in your in your career, I'd say, you know, especially getting into your first job is, is find a great company with a great culture that wants you to be successful and is going to help you to, to develop a foundation and a network that'll serve you well, well for your entire career. I mean, and I was I was I was lucky, uh, fortunate, if not lucky, you know, to join Trammell Crow Company and so many of the the, the people that I met there have helped me be successful and succeed, you know, for um, my entire career. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And, and then, then I'd say as you get into your career a little bit, and, and I see this, I call it the three-year itch, um, but, but let a little grass grow under your feet. You know, I mean, work hard, keep your head down, but, but be thoughtful about if you're going to make a change, is, is this a lateral move or am I really improving my uh, opportunity and to achieve my career goals and, and whatnot? Love it. All right. One more question. Uh, this is a, it's a big one. If you owned a billboard, call it on 75, very busy freeway in Dallas, and you could put anything on that billboard, what would you put on that billboard? Be nice. I love it. Be nice. Be nice. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having this me. This is great. Appreciate it. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.